0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric
1: Steiner with today's top stories. A second Russian jet crashes, and the U.S. dismisses Russian dirty bomb claims. China's Xi Jinping wins a third term. Rishi Sunak will become next British Prime Minister.
0: U.S. math and reading scores drop nationwide.
1: Jury selection begins for the Trump Organization fraud trial.
0: Murray and Smiley debate for the Washington Senate election.
1: Pelosi and Sanders press Democrats' election case on talk shows.
0: North and South Korea trade warning shots. Turkey is forcing refugees back to Syria. The U.N. suspends its anti-torture mission to Australia because of denied access.
1: And the U.S. will expand access to opioid addiction medicine for pregnant women.
0: Our top story, the fighting in the Ukraine, continues on day 243 of this conflict. A second Russian jet crashes in a week, and the U.S. dismisses Russian dirty bomb claims. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, The Guardian, the U.S. State Department, Pravda, and Ukraine Forum. For the second time in a week, a Russian fighter jet has crashed in Russian territory, slamming into residential buildings and igniting a large blaze. Russian officials said Sunday's crash in the Siberian region of Irkutsk killed both pilots on board, but that no civilians were harmed. It comes following a crash in the Yask region last Monday, which authorities said killed 15 civilians and injured 19. Officials have stated that criminal investigations to determine the causes of both crashes have been opened. Meanwhile, after Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu called counterparts from the U.S., U.K., France, and Turkey over the weekend to allege that Ukraine is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb, a conventional munition with radioactive material, the U.S. has joined other countries in dismissing the claims as unsubstantiated. In a joint statement on behalf of the U.S., U.K., and French governments published on the U.S. State Department website on Sunday, the nation said, Our countries made clear that we all reject Russia's transparently false allegations that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory. The world would see through any attempt to use this allegation as a pretext for escalation. In the southern Kherson region, amid ongoing civilian evacuations and as heavy fighting continues in the north of the region— Local officials announced the formation of a territorial defense force to give men who haven't evacuated the option to fight in defense of the region. Local officials also alleged that the Kakovskaya hydropower plant was again struck by Ukrainian rockets, but the claim couldn't be independently verified. Heavy clashes also continued in the Donetsk region, namely near Bakhmut and Avdivka. Ukrainian officials said 7 civilians have been killed and 5 more injured in the Donetsk region over the past day, adding that a further fatality came in the region of Zaporizhia. 6 people were reported injured in Neopopetrovsk while 3 others were reported injured in Kharkiv. Scott, thank you for the facts. And during this podcast, we always
1: extract the spins from each story, and for this one we're going to begin with an anti-Russian narrative coming from The Guardian. Now that civilians are being ordered to flee Kherson, It's clear that Russian authorities are losing their grip on the region and don't foresee their return. Even Moscow sees that the Ukrainian counteroffensive will inevitably force the occupiers to retreat.
0: Countering that, we have the pro russian narrative from TASS. Russian forces are maintaining control over the Kherson region and continuing to repel attacks. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are incurring heavy losses as they unsuccessfully attempt to advance.
1: And from time to time, we feature a nerd narrative for the stories. And this one says that there's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of Kherson by December 16th, 2022. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, we have news from China as Xi Jinping wins a third term. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Guardian, Al Jazeera, NPR Online News... Reuters and NBC. Chinese President Xi Jinping secured a third five year term as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, on Sunday following a twice a decade Communist Party Congress. This comes as 2,400 CCP delegates attended the 20th Party Congress on Saturday to ratify constitutional changes and major reshuffles, re electing Xi as the General Secretary of the Politburo Standing Committee, or PSC, and appointing its six additional members. Amendments to the CCP's charter instructed party members to recognize and protect Xi Jinping as the core of the party, to regard his governing philosophy as a key doctrine of party rule, and to protect the CCP's leading position in China. A video showing former President Hu Jintao apparently resisting being escorted from the closing ceremony by party aides has fueled speculation among China analysts, despite state news agency Xinhua stating that he had been feeling unwell. Xi's third term breaks with the traditional two-term limit, which was introduced by Deng Xiaoping in 1982 to prevent a return to a Mao-style of rule but retracted in 2018. Xi was named leader of the CCP in 2012.
0: Highly political story here, Eric, so we've got some highly political narratives. Let's start with the anti-China narrative from the New York Times. Xi Jinping, since the very beginning, has put himself on track to become the next Mao Zedong in Chinese politics. He has crushed dissent, uprooted civil society organizations, and expunged political rivals in his quest to be China's autocrat. Now having secured a precedent-defying third term, Xi is set to push his vision of a strong, nationalist China even further, with himself at the center.
1: And Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative for this story. Xi is in power because he is a strong and charismatic leader who understands the complex challenges that contemporary China is facing. The CCP now has a strong and unified core leadership which is advantageous to overcoming China's many political and economic obstacles.
0: And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they're saying that there's a 57% chance that Xi Jinping will continue leading China in 2030. I think if I was ever fortunate or unfortunate enough to win major political office, if I won the first term, I would announce immediately after that I was not going to choose to seek a second term. To like kind of lock in that I'm a winner. Hey, you know, that's not a bad that's not a bad way to do it. Yeah, I've also like to announce right now this will be my final episode of the podcast.
1: Okay, okay, <laughs> all right.
0: Big news out of the United Kingdom as Rishi Sunak is to become their next prime minister. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, CNBC, The Telegraph, BBC News, Independent, and the New York Post. Rishi Sunak will become the UK's next prime minister, replacing Liz Truss, who announced her resignation last Thursday. The former chancellor was elected unopposed after former prime minister Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt pulled out of the race within the Conservative Party. His election comes at a tumultuous time as Truss resigned over the economic fallout of her mini-budget after six weeks in office, and Johnson was forced out of office three months ago over a COVID scandal and links to disgraced Member of Parliament Chris Pincher. Speaking at the Conservative Party HQ, Sunak paid tribute to Trust for her leadership efforts and said he was humbled and honored to serve as the new Tory leader, adding that the country faces a profound economic challenge which can only be overcome with stability and unity. Sunak has reportedly ruled out an early general election to his Tory colleagues during a closed-door meeting, refusing calls from opposition parties led by the Labour Party. The next general election is due to take place in 2024. On Tuesday, he will make a statement outside Number 10 before traveling to Buckingham Palace, where King Charles III will host an audience, that's a one-on-one meeting with the king, and the new Tory leader. Prior to that, Truss will chair a cabinet meeting and offer her resignation to the king. Sunak is set to make history in Britain, becoming its first non-white prime minister and the first Hindu to take the top job. He will also be the youngest prime minister in more than 200 years.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts. We do have some spins that have emerged from this story. A right narrative is coming from Telegraph. The country is now in safe hands. Sunak has proved his capacity as chancellor and will bring to the office of prime minister exactly what the UK needs, a moderate, competent, and cogent government. Tory MPs have made a wise decision by selecting a leader with political maturity and the ability to learn and change, Sunak is the person to mend the economy and the reputation of the Conservative Party.
0: Contrast that with this left narrative from NewsBud. Generations of Conservative MPs have set the UK economy up for failure and brought the British political system to its knees. Since the Brexit referendum divided the nation in 2016, a succession of incompetent leaders plunged Westminster into chaos to the cost of the British people. Yet again, the Tories have elected a leader behind closed doors, and if Sunak fails to fulfill his pledges, there will be no way of holding him accountable.
1: And according to the Metaculous Prediction community, we have a nerd narrative that says there is a 30% chance that the Conservative Party will form the first government after the next UK general election.
0: Pretty low bar when uh, the thing that we need in a government is just for it to be cogent, which I guess would mean like that it makes any sense at all. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, in, in, the fact that he is the youngest in more than 200 years is kind of a fresh start, too, I would think.
0: Yeah, 200 years. I guess the England would say that'd be relatively recent, though, right? Nah, that's true.
1: Turning our attention to news from the U.S., United States math and reading scores have dipped nationwide. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, U.S. News & World Report, CNN. WFDD, NPR, and NewsBud. On Monday, the results from the U.S. National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, known as the Nation's Report Card, were released in full for the first time since 2019. The exams are conducted by the National Center for Education Statistics, or NCES, a branch of the Education Department, and test 4th and 8th graders in math and reading. The report takes place every two years, however, it was delayed from 2021 until 2022 due to the COVID pandemic. The report showed the largest math score decline amongst fourth and eighth graders since the initial trial assessment in 1990, with no state or large urban district showing improvement. Reading scores dipped by approximately three points in both grades, while math scores dropped by five points in fourth grade, the lowest level since 2005 and eight points in eighth grade, the lowest level since 2003. While NCES Commissioner Peggy Carr said the drop in math was expected due to COVID disruption, the U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona called the results, quote, appalling and unacceptable, adding that how the U.S. responds to the news will determine not only our recovery,
0: but our nation's standing in the world. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Project Syndicate gives us Narrative A. Overreacting to COVID was an educational, economic, and moral tragedy. Schools were closed for too long, and now we're dealing with the consequences. Schools should open on Saturdays and extend hours to get math and reading back to pre-pandemic levels. Undoing the damage of these awful decisions should begin immediately.
1: And Bloomberg gives us a narrative B for this story. The impact of COVID on the education system is undeniable. However, the school system has long been failing. Curriculum and school funding are becoming more polarized and politicized. Enrollments in alternative schooling are increasing, and school violence and shootings are a real worry. There has been a long-fused systemic failure that can't be pinned on COVID alone.
0: Looking at these two narratives, typically we have one narrative that says one thing and then the other narrative that disagrees with it. In the case of these two narratives, one of them says, well, COVID made the schools bad. And the other one says, oh, the schools have always been bad. So everyone agrees that the schools are no good.
1: Hey, hey, can you do me a favor
0: and dumb that down for me a little bit? Oh, you you went to American school? You're American? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jury selection begins for the Trump Organization fraud trial. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Washington Post, Fox News, Newsweek, and Reuters. Jury selection began on Monday in the criminal trial of the Trump Organization accused of tax crimes, including fraud and other illegal business practices. If convicted, the company and its subsidiary, Trump Payroll Corporation, could face $1.6 million in fines. The indictment which came down after a three-year investigation alleges executives received substantial portions of their income through indirect and disguised means, including luxury cars and expensive housing, so they could then report lower earnings to tax authorities. The company is also accused of not withholding taxes on wages and other compensation, as well as evading paying payroll taxes on multiple types of employee compensation. Trump is not facing any charges individually in this case though Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said his criminal investigation into the former president continues, adding that Trump could face criminal charges personally. Former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weiselberg is expected to be the prosecution's star witness after pleading guilty in August to several charges, including grand larceny and tax fraud. He agreed to testify truthfully in exchange for serving just five months in jail with an opportunity to be freed after 100 days. In a transcript of a virtual hearing last week, Susan Netchels, a lawyer for the Trump Organization, explained that much of the company's defense will be based on casting Weiselberg as untruthful.
1: Those were the facts, and we have three spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with a Democratic narrative, and it is courtesy of CNN. Although Trump can't be personally held responsible in this case, The chance for prosecutors to expose his company's fraudulent tax practices could be an appetizer to the main course of future criminal cases and civil cases faced by the former president. Trump should be worried about what all these cases are doing to his prospects for a presidential run in 2024.
0: And the pro-Trump narrative comes from the Daily Caller. The Democrats' witch hunt never rests. New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, is a biased actor looking for a crime. In this case, she's trying to shamelessly score political points by blocking Trump and his family from doing business in her state. And Once again, the
1: nerds are chiming in for this story, saying that there is a 20 percent chance that Donald Trump will be jailed by the year 2030. And that's coming from the Metaculous prediction community. I think that percentage has gone up a little
0: bit. Let's, uh, let us me dive into the numbers here. It, let's see. It was at- Seems like it was like 6 or 7% at one time, wasn't it? Yeah. Going on Metaculous.com to dive into these numbers here. In early September, it was at 26%, but earlier this month, it was at 18%. Okay. But, uh,
1: That's what I'm thinking of then. Yeah, yeah.
0: But but in over the summer, it was 10%. So I think okay. you might be thinking of that. It was down, right, down yeah, around yeah. 10%. Yeah. I wonder what the numbers of, uh, of you being jailed by 2030 are on here. Uh, on those here. are off the
1: charts. So those those are are off, off the <laughs> charts. <laughs> yeah. let take it off the board. That's yeah. right. And more political news coming from the U.S. Murray and Smiley debate for the Washington Senate. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Cairo 7, L.A. Times, and King 5. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, and her Republican challenger Tiffany Smiley debated abortion, crime, and inflation on Sunday in their only planned debate before the midterm election. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, and her Republican challenger Tiffany Smiley debated abortion, crime, and inflation on Sunday in their only planned debate before the midterm election. In the debate, Smiley characterized Murray as an establishment politician out of touch with the needs of the people of Washington. Murray framed the race by saying, quote, "Women's rights are on the ballot. Our democracy is on the ballot, and our economy is on the ballot." A recent poll shows a close margin between the two candidates. Senator Murray is pursuing her sixth term in the last thirty years. The recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade may potentially give Murray momentum to keep her seat. Smiley has said that she would respect the will of Washington's people and maintain access to abortion. Murray is Washington's first female U.S. senator. She served a term as a state senator and then won her race for U.S. Senate in 1992, where she serves to this day. Smiley co-founded and serves as president of Hope Unseen, which is a veteran advocacy group. She emphasized her support for public safety and law enforcement in her first political campaign.
0: The Seattle Times brings us the Democratic narrative on this story. Smiley's campaign is using the tired Republican tactic of inflating the threat of crime and blowing urban decay out of proportion. Though Smiley isn't a pro-life extremist, the more Republicans in the Senate, the more likely it is that access to abortion will be restricted. Ultimately, Smiley's campaign tactics are to lump all of Washington's Democrats in with Seattle's more progressive elements, which is pure Republican theatrics.
1: And 770 KTTH, Conservative Talk Radio, gives us the Republican narrative. Though Murray may claim that she cares about Washington families, her track record says otherwise. Despite overwhelming data showing school lockdown during the pandemic deeply harmed kids more than COVID ever could, Murray said she still supports keeping kids home from school. Additionally, Murray is hyper-focused on abortion, which is neither on the ballot nor under threat in Washington. Still, she acts like it's the only issue voters care about dismissing voters' concerns regarding crime and inflation.
0: We've got yet another narrative on this story, narrative C, coming from the Los Angeles Times. This will be a close race, as there is a variety of moving parts that could determine its outcome. On one hand, Smiley is a political outsider who has skillfully maneuvered herself to align with the broad conservative momentum resulting from Trump's victory in 2016. However... The overturning of Roe v. Wade could be her downfall as Washington is one of the more pro-choice states in the union. This race will likely be hard to call. And a nerd
1: narrative says that there is a 46% chance that the Republican Party will control both the House and the Senate after the 2022 midterm elections, according to the Metaculous
0: Prediction Community. And more U.S. midterm election news. Pelosi and Sanders pressed the Democrats' case on talk shows. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The New York Times, CBS, CNN, ABC, and Politico. Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, have made their case for control of Congress across the five major Sunday talk shows. Their appearances focused on the party's economic policy, as Republicans have gained an edge in the polls just weeks from the midterm elections. On CBS's Face the Nation, Pelosi argued that inflation is a global problem that the Biden administration is working hard to tackle. She also said the president is working to bring down the cost of living in the U.S. while reducing the national deficit and stressed that a GOP victory in the coming elections would put Social Security and Medicare at risk. CNN's State of the Union featured Senator Sanders, who said that Democrats have to contrast their pro-worker economic plan with the Republicans' corporate agenda, claiming that the latter want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and wages to fight extraneous inflation. Meanwhile, on ABC's This Week, Democratic campaign chief Representative Sean Patrick Maloney claimed that Republicans have no plan to fix the economy, despite having blamed Democrats for economic problems ahead of the elections. Sunday's appearances came on the same day as the release of an ABC News Ipsos poll indicating that voters trust Republicans more than Democrats on economy and fuel-related inflation. The issues are reportedly those most on voters' minds in relation to the midterms. Meanwhile, Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina, the only Republican interviewed about the GOP's agenda this Sunday, endorsed House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's suggestion to demand spending cuts before allowing a debt ceiling increase in an appearance on CNN.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts. And we have three spins that have emerged, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. The economy is getting back on track. The U.S. annual deficit has seen its largest one year drop in history while gas prices are falling and unemployment rates are lowering. If voters hand control of Congress over to Republicans in these midterm elections, Americans will be electing a group that are willing to crash the economy and put the U.S. in default in order to achieve their ideologically driven agenda of Social Security and Medicare cuts.
0: Contrast that with this Republican narrative from Washington Free Beacon. The U.S. is heading towards stagflation and the Biden administration is to blame. The Democrats have failed to take action against the worst inflation in decades, deeming it as transitory and fictitiously blaming soaring prices on corporate greed and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. In fact, it is down to reckless government spending at a time of restricted supply. A Republican Congress is needed to curb Biden's big spending and end this crisis for working Americans.
1: And a narrative coming from the nerds says that there is a 17% chance that the Democratic Party will control the House and Senate following the 2022 midterm elections, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. Turning our attention to tensions in Korea, both nations exchange warning shots. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Korea June Gang Daily, Korea Times, NBC, ABC, and Guardian. On Monday, North and South Korea exchanged warning shots, charging each other of infringing on their western maritime border as tensions run high. Pyongyang has conducted weapon tests at an unprecedented clip in 2022. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff, or JCS, and Pyongyang fired 10 artillery shells into a buffer region in the Yellow Sea, allegedly violating a 2018 inter-Korean military agreement. The North's Korean People's Army, however, claimed it was a grave warning against naval intrusions from the South. This came one hour after the JCS broadcasted 20 warning messages and fired 20 warning shots in response to a North Korean merchant ship that reportedly crossed the Northern Limit Line, or NLL, the de facto sea boundary in the West Sea, at around 3.40 a.m., The incident area is highly disputed due to the poorly marked sea boundary near the Korean Peninsula's west coast and is a source of long-running tensions. The region has been the scene of several violent naval battles between the North and South in recent years. Following this latest incident, Seoul issued a statement saying that large-scale four-day firing exercises would be carried out off its west coast starting on Monday. This is part of South Korea's annual defense drills, which also involve U.S. troops this year. Monday's exchange of fire comes as U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman is to hold three-way talks with Japan and South Korea in Tokyo. The intent is to show unity amid recent escalations.
0: Thanks for those frightening facts, Eric. Red State brings us the Republican narrative. You cannot blame King Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does Kim know the U.S. will not also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? Trump's relationship with and policies toward North Korea maintain stability in the Korean peninsula.
1: MSNBC gives us a democratic narrative. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic, and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation... Kim should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any of his grievances peacefully. Biden
0: is showing strength and prudence in the region. And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 17% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by the year 2045. An NGO reports that Turkey is forcing refugees back to Syria. are the facts as agreed upon by Gate, ABC, Washington Post, Stars and Stripes, Independent, and Voice of America. According to the NGO Human Rights Watch, or HRW's, report released on Monday, hundreds of Syrian men and boys were detained, beaten, and forcibly returned to their home country by Turkish authorities over a six-month period between February and July 2022. The deported Syrians told researchers that Turkish officials arrested them in their homes, workplaces, and on the street. They were then allegedly detained and forced to sign documents agreeing to voluntarily return to Syria and led across the border at gunpoint. Turkey is bound by an international treaty that prohibits returning anyone to a place where they would face real risk of death, torture, or persecution. Last month, the UN Commission of Inquiry on Syria designated the country as unsafe for returnees, and so Turkey is allegedly in violation of international law, according to HRW. Turkey has the world's largest refugee population, including 3.6 million Syrians, who have fled throughout the decade-long war. Previously, the Turkish government has denied accusations of forcibly returning refugees to Syria. Earlier this month, a Turkish official said nearly 527,000 Syrians had already voluntarily returned, with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in May saying Ankara would organize the return of one million refugees. The news comes as Erdogan has signaled a shift toward more positive relations with the Syrian President Bashar Assad, with additional repatriations being part of the major component of the dialogue.
1: Two spins have emerged from this story, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from HRW. Under Turkey's Temporary Protection Regulation, Ankara must accept all Syrian refugees who cross its border. So these deportations violate not only international law, but Turkey's own law. These inhumane refugee roundups and expulsions are due to rising xenophobia in Turkey. Erdogan's government must follow through on its international human rights obligations.
0: We've also got an establishment critical narrative from Turkish Minute. While tragic, the war in Syria isn't the Turkish people's fault, and they shouldn't be forced to deal with its migratory ramifications. The Syrians that Erdogan is sending back are going to safe zones in the border regions of Syria, where they will have Turkish-funded housing and other infrastructure provided for them. Ankara has been extremely welcoming to millions of Syrian refugees, more than any other nation. (coughs)
1: In our next story, the U.N. suspends anti-torture mission to Australia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, Al-Mayadeen, CNN, United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner, and K.A.K.E. Channel 10. The U.N. has suspended its anti-torture mission to Australia after inspectors were not permitted to visit several jails and detention facilities, according to the U.N.'s Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture. The drastic decision, as characterized by lead inspector Aisha Muhammad, makes Australia the fourth country to have anti-torture inspectors suspend or postpone missions after Rwanda, Azerbaijan, and Ukraine. Muhammad, a Supreme Court judge in the Maldives, claimed Australia was in clear breach of its international commitments and that their mandate at several jails and detention centers was clearly not understood. Australia is one of 91 signatories to the UN's optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, committing to reforms to safeguard detainees and make facilities subject to inspection. The four-person contingent arrived in Australia on October 16th and planned to stay until October 27th. However, the delegation was denied entry to facilities in Queensland and New South Wales. Australia has also delayed key international requirements, including creating an independent torture prevention body. A previous visit had been scheduled in 2020, but was
0: postponed due to COVID. Two narrative spins on this story, The Guardian gives us the establishment critical narrative. Resisting the UN team's mission poses the confusing question of why Australia would freely choose to ratify the framework and then continue to oppose its implementation. Tens of thousands of people are forcibly detained daily in Australia and have their human rights infringed upon. This is a concerning violation of international norms.
1: And the Australian Human Rights Commission gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Australia is committed to upholding human rights and meeting UN compliance deadlines. Despite the blunt ending to this visit, there is hope that the inspection can ultimately resume. The perplexing actions of the New South Wales and Queensland governments don't represent Canberra's commitments to human rights.
0: Our final story, the U.S. is to expand access to opioid addiction medicine for pregnant women. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the White House official website, the New York Times, the New York Daily Paper, and Medical Express. On Friday, the Biden administration announced a new plan to expand access to the medication that treats substance use disorders, particularly opioid addiction, for pregnant women through federal court and health programs. This is part of a larger push to address the U.S. drug crisis that reportedly causes more than 100,000 deaths annually. Pregnant women are especially at risk. Opioid use disorder among this demographic has more than quadrupled in recent years, according to the CDC. Pregnant women are also more likely to die of a drug overdose than the average woman of the same age, but less likely to have access to treatment medications. The plan will make it easier for pregnant women to get a prescription for drugs approved to treat opioid use disorder, such as buprenorphine and methadone. However, the use of drug-assisted treatment is controversial in the U.S. because these medications are themselves opioids. They don't cause a high at prescribed doses but can reduce withdrawal symptoms. The new program will also encourage judges to include opioid replacement drugs in sentencing plans, train healthcare providers to screen pregnant or childbearing age women for opioid use disorders, develop national certification standards for peer recovery support specialists, and launch new community programs. Two spins from this
1: story have emerged. Scott, thank you for the facts, by the way. And we begin with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Undark. This is an important step forward to address the ongoing opioid crisis in the U.S. and help protect some of the most vulnerable people in society, pregnant women and their children. The use of medications like buprenorphine and methadone is an evidence-based opioid addiction treatment and a scientifically proven way to reduce drug dependency and save lives. We know these medications work, and we have a duty to make them universally available.
0: Wrapping up today's show with the New York Times bringing us an establishment-critical narrative. A substance replacement approach to drug addiction is not the solution. Drugs like buprenorphine and methadone are opioids themselves. Switching one opioid for another, albeit prescribed, only serves to encourage ongoing drug use. It's not a long-term or sustainable answer to drug addiction, which is why relapse is so common. We have to do better for pregnant women and their future children by supporting them through detox and providing the support they need to abstain from drugs going forward.
1: Thanks for listening to the Improve the
0: News podcast for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.